Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. All right, I think maybe we have some few people coming in, but we can start. I would like to welcome all of you to this special lecture supported by the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. And thank you for making through the storm, <laughs> sandstorm. Uh, you might uh, hear me coughing throughout this introduction. It's not the flu, I promise, it's the sand that was affecting me, so. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, this evening we have a very special guest and we are delighted to have a speaker, one of the leading researchers in structural biology, Professor Leah Haddadi. Uh, Leah is a professor of structural biology at the Faculty of Chemistry, the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. She was born in Padua, Italy, and she earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in chemistry at the University of Padua. And in the mid-70s, she moved to the Weizmann Institute of Science, uh, where she worked with Mayer Lachav on her PhD that was related to synthesis of chiral polymers. After graduating in 1979, she took a postdoctoral position uh, with Jeremy R. Knowles at Harvard University, where she started her scientific journey by studying nacre, also known as a mother of pearl. Uh, this material is one of the classic examples uh, of uh, ex extremely tough biological hybrid materials that capitalize on the properties of structural components with very different physical properties. In 1988, she returned to the Weizmann Institute where she was uh, first appointed an associate professor and then later she was promoted to a full professor in 1993. And there she continued working at the interface of biology and structural chemistry. And it was during that period where she explained how macromolecules in the shells of mollusks determine the polymorphism of their more rigid inorganic components such as aragonite and calcite. In her work, Leah explores the crosstalk between crystals and the biological environment, and specifically she focuses on the interaction between crystals and cells. She explores the formation and manipulation of crystals within a biological context, a process that is broadly referred to as biomineralization. In her research, Leah asks, how structurally ordered and inherently stiff entities such as crystals form in the much less well-defined biological setting? How and why they, are, they evolve? How do they affect the physiology of the complex biological matrix of the host? And do they have a supportive or somewhat pathological effect? And if so, the most importantly for us, how can we prevent them from being harmful? Uh, these questions are anything but easy to answer, and they require a profound understanding of sometimes diametrically opposed uh, disciplines that she was uh, doing very successfully in her career. Leah explores the organic crystalline materials of vision and mimicry, such as the enigmatic reflective materials in the eyes of the shrimps, the reflective scale that helps fish disguise, and the image forming mirrors in the eyes of the scallops. Her work explained the formation of visually captivating shells of tiny microscopic algae, 
are also known as dinoflagellates, which conceal beautiful solid-state chemistry and their intricate morphological features that have intrigued scientists and laypersons for centuries. Her research is poised to lead to the development of new engineering technologies based on composite materials for mechanics, optics, uh, or electronics. Leah has dedicated many years to studying the crystallization of cholesterol, a compound that, unfortunately, many of us can relate to. Leah's work and those of others in the field have shown that cholesterol is much more than an indicator in a routine blood test report. And as I'm sure you will hear in this lecture, it can be the root cause of much more severe health conditions. Among many other exciting discoveries that she made, I would like to highlight her work on proteins such as immunoglobulins and serum albumins that can adhere to surfaces uh, of crystals and facilitate or determine crystal growth. These results are nothing but essential to understanding the formation of crystals that cause diseases such as gout, osteoarthritis, atherosclerosis, and even kidney stones. Lisa, uh, Leah studies these complex natural phenomena with impressive depth, rigor, and an incredible ability to think across the borders of what we tra uh, traditionally think as a siloed scientific disciplines. Her work, as I'm sure you will uh, conclude, is inspirational, and not only for seasoned researchers, but in the experience of my own research group, also to junior researchers and students whose interest in science is driven first and foremost by curiosity and the joy of uncovering the secrets of nature. With her work, she has also been a role model to women researchers. And that particular aspect of her professional accomplishment is something that we particularly cherish and admire. Recognizing her distinguished and continuing achievements in original research, she was elected a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. There, she has received many honors and awards. I would just like to highlight that among, among other awards that she received, Leah was the first woman to win the Etihad Zurich Prelog Prize. With that, I would like to thank the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for generously supporting this lecture, and I would like to invite Leah to deliver her lecture. Well, thank you, Pancha. You are doing wonderfully. Do you want to continue and give my lecture? <laughs> I'm sure you would give it very, very well. Uh, thank you for inviting me here. It's. Uh, what I have seen so far has been very, very interesting. And uh, I'm sure that this is not the last time I'll be here. So thank you very much. And um, I, I would like to say, uh, stop me whenever you have a, an urgent question, but maybe uh, you won't want to do that. So. I'll be available to try to answer all the questions that you may have afterwards, anyhow. So uh, uh, I'm going to talk about crystals in health and disease. And um, starting from there, one could ask 
or maybe you are asking yourself what is really a crystal. And uh, you may think about the crystals for good luck, what is considered the crystals for good luck. But no, these are not the uh, scientific definition of crystals. In the scientific definition, a crystal is a solid material whose constituents, uh, that are atoms or molecules or ions, are arranged in a highly ordered structure forming a lattice uh, that extends uh, regularly in all directions. Then maybe you'll, you'll think about uh, real crystals, uh, such as the crystals of salt or sugar that we, are, we see on our table at all times. And then uh, maybe uh, you'll recognize also these as uh, uh, crystals because of the regular shape that reflects the order in the internal structure. Then uh, when, uh, when we see this, we, uh, what is this? This may look like uh, a landscape from the moon or looking at a cliff. It uh, certainly looks very uh, big, but no. The sizes that we are talking about uh, are sizes of uh, micrometers. That's uh, uh, a meter divided by one million. So they are very, very small. And in fact, uh, these are crystals that uh, are under the skin of uh, a very small animal and uh, uh, make it uh, um, reflect the light, and we'll see that later. And uh, we are here in the world of uh, biomineralization. So before I give you examples of biomineralization, I want to show you what we call the wheel of biomineralization. Biomineralization, that's uh, um, the ability of organisms to make uh, all kinds of structures out of crystals. And these uh, are, of course, uh, uh, important uh, in orthopedics uh, and in dentistry because our teeth and our bone have crystals in it, and crystals are of the main components uh, of uh, our teeth and bone. And then uh, biomineralization is important in archaeology, and in evolution and in paleontology, because uh, uh, oftentimes, or most of the times, what is left of organisms once they disappear, once they are dead, is uh, the bones, structures that are mineralized, so the crystals. And uh, uh, it's important uh, in oceanography and then in sedimentology because uh, the minerals that uh, organisms deposit accumulate in our environment at the bottom of the ocean and uh, in the um, sediments that make the mountains and the bottom of the ocean. And then they are certainly important uh, for, as an inspiration 
for building materials because the level of sophistication that uh, biological materials uh, uh, achieve uh, is something that we cannot imitate, but we can get ideas from it to produce better materials. The functions uh, that are fulfilled by uh, materials from biomineralization are many, and uh, at least are several. And uh, I'll go through them and I'll give you one example more in depth about each of them. So certainly the most uh, well-known function is the function of skeletal support. And uh, we immediately think about uh, ourselves and, the, uh, and all the vertebrates uh, and the bone, but uh, also uh, animals from the sea have uh, um, skeletons, uh, such as uh, this sponge that uh, makes uh, a house built of glass, of silica, and uh, the corals that build very massive structures made of uh, calcium carbonates. And uh, these little uh, animals from the ocean, tunicates, uh, that uh, look like nothing, but uh, they are really superstars in terms of biomineralization and of the beauty of the structures uh, that they built. And uh, well, if we look now at what certainly interests us most, uh, this is uh, our bone and vertebrate bones that are made of uh, collagen fibers, the collagen that we have also in our skin, and mineral that is a calcium phosphate mineral, carbonated hydroxyapatite. So how is bone built? Um, it is uh, a, a hierarchical material that starts from very, very uh, um, unit fibers of uh, tropocollagen. It's even not collagen, it's the precursor of collagen at the nano level. And uh, then these uh, tropocollagen fibrils uh, uh, join together to form a microfibril that has channels. And uh, in these channels uh, deposit uh, the crystals. And uh, look, we are at the dimensions really of uh, nanometric. That's uh, one thousandth of one million of a meter. And the crystals uh, uh, juxtapose in between the um, microfibrils in a very ordered manner to give a, a mineralized fiber that, and the fibrils join up to give a fiber and then uh, they assemble to form lamellas uh, and uh, the bone reproduces, uh, reconstructs itself uh, with osteons uh, and then the final bone that uh, at the macro level what we're used to see. So this is a very uh, controlled structure, and uh, that's, to that factor we owe the um, possibility to stand up and move around. If the crystals were removed from the bone, we would just 
bend down and uh, splash on the, on the pavement. But all this uh, was uh, uh, known for quite a long time. Uh, but there is one problem that uh, we, um, we addressed that was a problem that really surprised us uh, for a long time. And it's not only about uh, bone, but also about uh, um, the uh, organisms of the sea that make structures, and we'll see more about that. And the basic problem is that, uh, I told you, bone is built of calcium and phosphate. Uh, the calcium comes from the body fluids. But uh, uh, in order to build a bone through the cells, uh, the calcium must be uh, concentrated by more than four orders of magnitude. How can we do that? If we had to pass the liquids uh, the, all the time through the site where the crystals are growing, looks like an impossibility. Looks like uh, uh, we would have to, to pass liters and liters uh, to just to extract a little bit of calcium. And the same is true for seawater going to the skeletons of the sea creatures. So how can that happen? We started uh, by looking uh, uh, at a simple model. And the simpler model is uh, the zebrafish larva tail fin that grows all the time. So one can look at it and study it uh, while it is growing. And it has a very interesting structure because uh, it's made of two uh, half cylinder of bone. And uh, these are what you see here. I'll tell you in a moment what you're looking at. And uh, in the middle between the two halves bone, uh, bones, two half cylinders, passes the artery, while outside runs uh, the vein. So the artery is here, you'll see it better in a moment, and the vein goes back. And uh, in this picture you see actually the tail where the bones are, uh, have been labeled in green by calcine, and the red is uh, uh, the blood. And uh, what I'll show you now is uh, a movie a video that uh, was obtained by reconstruction of measurements uh, done with uh, what is called cryofibsem. It's cryo, focused ion beam, scanning electron microscopy. And uh, it works like cheese. Uh, you you uh, uh, take a little bit of a slice, a very thin slice, with a focused ion beam, and then you take a picture, and you eliminate another small slice, and you take a picture, and the whole tissue is there. It's as, if, as it was uh, on the in the tail of the zebrafish. So we don't uh, do any operation on it uh, besides freezing it. Now, when we have a block of uh, 1,000 or hundreds of pictures, we can reconstruct it. 
And uh, when we reconstruct them, we can then analyze uh, what's happening in a large volume at a, at a high resolution. So just to show you in this first slice, this is the bone. <coughs> and this is the artery, the cut of the artery. This is a cut of the bone. And these are all cells, what you see here. These are the cells that build the bone. And now let's see the movie. So we are going through slices. And as I told you, this is the artery, and these are the bones. And these are all the cells. And after we go through the whole stack of pictures, we reconstruct what is happening and look at it in three dimensions. There it comes. So uh, this is the block of the pictures. And uh, this is the artery. The bone is in white. And the artery goes through the bone, as I promised you. But now we want to look at the cells. What happens uh, in between the cells? The artery, these are the cells. And look how much free space there is. There is, all the brown is free space. So it turns out that the liquids from the artery can reach the bone. And together with other studies, we got to the conclusion that indeed, at least for the zebrafish larva, fast bone formation occurs at least in part through direct transport of calcium from the blood to the growing bone. And what happens to our bone? Well, um, if uh, a bone, this is a long bone, one of our long bones in the um, arms or the legs. In the, in the kids, uh, it grows uh, through a growth plate. And here is a picture of the growth plate, again, in the uh, my, uh, electron microscope. What happens uh, in the growth plate uh, is uh, that first uh, the cartilage develops. And here are all the cells that uh, build the cartilage. Then uh, the cartilage calcifies and vascularized. And, and you have a lot of blood vessels that arrive here where the car mineralized cartilage is formed. But then, finally, in a third stage, the bone grows and substitutes uh, the, for the cartilage. And, how does, and then the bone elongates. And now you'll see it much better. So now we are looking uh, with optical microscopy. And we have obtained pictures uh, in which uh, the cartilage cells uh, are, are uh, marked in red. They are labeled in red. The green is the bone or the mineralized cartilage that are growing, are the crystals, the mineral. And the blue is uh, the blood, is the cells that are in the blood. And if we look at it, we can see that here it goes. This is the cartilage, 
and the bone of the, that is growing here and the mineralized cartilage and the blood arrives everywhere. Go look how much it penetrates inside. And again, with additional uh, information that I'm not going to show you because it would be too much, but we got to the conclusion that uh, in fact, uh, in the growth of, of our bones, uh, the cells deposit the collagen, but the blood reaches everywhere and directly carries the calcium and phosphate to form the crystals. So, and this was something that was not considered uh, uh, very clear at, at all uh, in the past. Now we're moving to another function. It's also a function that is well known, function of protection. So uh, a mineralized structure are formed to cover and to protect uh, the soft tissues. And the shells are certainly something that is very well known. But here I chose to, sh to show you a mollusk shell that is very, very special. Because uh, look at the structure of uh, uh, the mineral in the shell. It's a very, very complicated uh, quasi-helical structure uh, that's uh, developed uh, in order to allow the animal that it lives in the plankton, so lives suspended in the water uh, column, to um, float, not to have too heavy a shell. And in fact, uh, the shell is very, very thin, but very resistant. So this is good for people interested in materials, uh, how to reproduce a structure that's very, very strong. And then we have again uh, calcareous and siliceous algae that uh, uh, make structures uh, of, at the level of micrometers. This was at the level of millimeters. Uh, sea urchins uh, build their spines uh, and they are of the order of magnitude of centimeters. Uh, crustaceans, uh, they are of tens of centimeters. We just saw the aquarium in Abu Dhabi, and there are some kind of crustaceans that are huge. And um, I'll show you again this uh, foraminiferal shells uh, that are quite interesting because they, they are relatively quite big but uh, they are built just of one cell. And they have this uh, chamber structure with multiple chambers uh, that it builds one after the other. Why are these foraminifera so important? Well, they are important uh, uh, together with uh, coccolithophores uh, because uh, uh, they are both uh, uh, organisms uh, built of only one cell, unicellular organisms, but they are enormously important uh, in the ocean carbon cycle. And uh, this is because uh, with the light and the uh, CO2 that's in the atmosphere and penetrates the water, the phytoplankton, that's uh, these uh, um, coccolithophores and foraminifera, uh, 
through photosynthesis uh, with the light, produce the organic matter, deposit uh, calcium carbonate, uh, and eventually they are stored by sedimentation. So they both regulate and use the CO2 from the atmosphere, and at the same time, you can think what is the effect of ocean acidification. That's one of the things that we are very, very worried in our era. And just to, to show you how many there are, the White Cliffs of Dover are, uh, were formed 100 million years ago, but they are all made of uh, shells uh, of coccolithophores uh, and foraminifera. And here what you see is the bloom, what's called the bloom of coccolithophores uh, around the south coast of uh, the UK. And the, this white shadow is all made of coccolithophores uh, that are of the size of micrometers. So just imagine how many organisms there are. Now let's look for a moment uh, at the sea urchin larval spicule, how they grow and what, uh, uh, how they are created, how they look like. So these are the larvae of sea urchins. You can see here the spicules that make the skeleton. You can see it much better here, where the spicules were labeled with a dye that labels them green. And you can see here the spicule that is extracted. Well, believe it or not, this whole spicule that is so convoluted in its morphology is one single crystal. So how is that built? Well, we looked at it for many years. This is, in fact, uh, a, an embryo that we are looking at it from above, uh, from the, the, as if we were looking from here. And uh, this is the electron microscopy of the cut embryo. And in fact, uh, here you have the spicules that are coming out of the broken surface. And when we look at them at higher magnification, we see that there is the spicule here. And this is a cell. And this is the cell that pours the mineral that's contained in these packs here onto the cell and makes it grow. And how does that work? So here we are going back again to the same technique that I was showing you before. This is now the spicule. And look at the cells and at the level of uh, uh, details that we can see here. This is the nucleus of the cell and all kinds of vesicles and all kinds of uh, organelles of the cell. So what you see now in the, in the movie is uh, at the beginning uh, a reconstruction of, of the block of the photograph from the side. We we'll see that the, um, the spicule from the side. And we are going, here it comes. This is the spicule from the side going through. And all the cells around it 
that are building it. And now it's going to turn around and we're going down through uh, the cell. And you remember that I told you that uh, this is a problem also. How do they build the spicule? And then we noticed uh, that there were these openings uh, to the seawater, openings in the cell, as if, uh, in fact, uh, the cells are drinking water from the environment. And on it goes, and there are all these cells that are building the spicules, and they all drink water and extract the calcium from it to build the material. And now it's going to give you the reconstruction, and you really see these packets of uh, uh, these vacuoles, uh, these sacks of water that the cell is uh, drinking. And from it, it is extracting the calcium. So we concluded uh, that uh, um, they really, uh, speci the spicule building cells really drink the seawater, extract the calcium, and deposit uh, amorphous mineral inside the small packets uh, in the cell and then transfer it to the spicule where it crystallizes uh, and then it can crystallize in one only crystal even if it is so convoluted. So that's an, another example of protection and now a third example is uh, the function of mastication, of grinding food. And uh, uh, of course, uh, we think of our teeth. And uh, these teeth are, are built of an incredibly strong composite material. Because you see, there are fibers that come in this direction, in this direction, and in this direction. And you can't imagine a composite material that is stronger than that. But look, also the sea urchin have teeth. The sea urchin, they must eat from the rocks on which they walk. So they have to have strong teeth. And the concept of how these teeth are built as a composite material is not so different from what we have in our own teeth. So fantastically strong composite material. But then there are also chiton teeth. Chitons are mollusks, and they also eat by um, grinding the rocks on which they are walking to extract the food. And their teeth, this is like a chain of about a hundred rows of teeth. And the teeth contain magnetite. They contain magnetite, uh, in fact, uh, as uh, a strong material, not as a magnetic material. But this then brings me, in, and they, they uh, throw away one row of uh, uh, teeth every day. Uh, but this brings me to other examples uh, in which the magnetite uh, is uh, magnetic, and, um, and this is uh, in the function of orientation and navigation. So we have otoliths, so we also have stones in our 
ears for uh, equilibrium and they have stones in their ears for um, navigation, but these are not made of magnetite uh, or the squid statolites. But uh, uh, homing pigeons have magnetite crystals here at the root of their beak, and the magnetite crystals uh, are those that help them to navigate and to get back to their home once they are freed. And the same is for the salmon fish and, uh, and many fish. And these small guys are uh, magnetotactic bacteria. These are bacteria and uh, they have a chain of magnetite crystals uh, inside that helps them to orient themselves uh, in the water in the fresh water in this case. And <clears throat> just see what happens uh, if we put them in uh, a magnetic field and we switch the magnetic field from one side to the other. You see, they switch, whoops, and they go back and forth. And in fact, uh, what they do, they they orient themselves in the magnetic field of the Earth. And this is because they want to stay in the middle of the puddles of water where they live and not to be exposed to the oxygen because they are anaerobic bacteria. <clears throat> and then we get to the fun optical function. That's what, uh, sorry. That's what Panche mentioned before. And uh, <clears throat> this is an incredibly interesting source uh, of uh, uh, materials for research. Uh, for those who will be uh, tomorrow at the seminar, I'll speak much more about it. But there are different uh, types of uh, uh, optical materials. For example, Brittle stars that are those marine stars that uh, stay inside the rocks and have uh, a hand outside. They, there are some of these uh, that have on their arms uh, these uh, uh, fan-shaped elements. And these are covered by lenses. And, uh, um, these lenses uh, concentrate uh, the light or, or the lack of light, uh, register the changes in the light uh, in a focal plane that, where the nerves uh, run so that the brittle star can know if in fact uh, some enemy is passing or some food is passing and can act uh, in as a consequence. In plants, uh, there are uh, fantastically shaped uh, elements. Uh, uh, this is calcium oxalate, uh, this is calcium carbonate, uh, that works, uh, work as lamps. In fact, uh, the leaf uh, is flooded with, life, with light and uh, is saturated with light. There is too much on the surface. But the cells under it uh, I want to make, uh, um, to use their chlorophyll to synthesize organic materials, 
but they cannot because uh, the cells that are above uh, absorb all the light and they filter it. So these work like lamps that transfer the light from the surface to the interior of the leaf and uh, let those interior cells be active. And then we go to structural colors and vision and uh, we'll look a little bit more uh, to that. So these uh, uh, are fish scales that are iridescent and they are iridescent because of crystals. And this little guy is a copepod and uh, copepods uh, uh, talk to each other in, from the depth of the sea and uh, this is how they do that. When the light hits the animal, it is deep blue and then it is there, it's transparent. You just don't see it because the color is not a, a, an absorption color, it's a structural color. And in fact, uh, what uh, gives uh, the color is uh, the structure that I showed you from the beginning all these crystals that uh, are under the skin of the, this little crustacean. So let's see how this happens. Uh, this is the whole spectrum of uh, the different types of, uh, uh, ray of uh, waves with their typical sizes. The visible light uh, is uh, <clears throat> up to almost one micrometer, but under it. The wavelength is between the size of a virus and the size of a bacterium. And uh, if we have uh, uh, organized structures, very thin structure, whose thickness and whose spacing is of the order of magnitude of the visible light, then light will interfere with them and will create colors. And these are the colors that we'll see. So this is the case, for example, in fish scales. These are the iridescent fish scales. And these are the cells under the scale. And the cells are packed with crystals of guanine. So this is a cell, and these uh, lines uh, are all very, very thin crystals. And the crystals uh, get the light partially reflected, the light interferes and give us the iridescence that uh, we see. And now look at this guy. And this is just, uh, this is a scallop, as, uh, as you can see. And the scallop, uh, is uh, opening up, uh, a sub is getting close to it with the camera, Lescalo de decides this is very dangerous and runs away. And s just swims away and the sub is going back and looking at it, trying to take pictures. The scallop is opening up again and again is running away. It's very scared decided that something is very dangerous there. But you see, uh, 
the sound is not touching it and is even quite far from it. So what is it? The question is that the scallop sees the sub. It, the scallops have eyes. So scallops have about up to 200 eyes around the shell, under the shell, around the soft tissue. Uh, these are the eyes at higher magnification. You see them here. And it turns out that light uh, in the eyes of the scallop, light passes through the retina, hits a concave mirror that's here in the back of the eye, by which it is back reflected and focused on the retinas that are here forming an image. I can't go through the whole story, but we reconstructed actually what uh, the uh, scallop can see by ray tracing. And uh, on the two retinas that it has in each eye, if we give it a picture of uh, a sea star, this is what they would see on the distal retina and on the proximal retina. So a combination of the two is not so bad. And uh, this is one eye. 200 of these, uh, you can imagine, they see quite well. So why, what is this mirror built of? Naturally, the mirror is built about, with crystals, otherwise I wouldn't be here to tell you about it. And this is the mirror, and these are the crystals. And when we look at the crystals uh, at the different angles. They are layers and layers uh, of beautiful and very regular crystals. And in fact, uh, this mirror is, uh, is built uh, like uh, the segmented mirrors of telescopes, but just very, very, very small. And uh, so the concept could be used to build uh, telescope at a microscopic size. And there are eyes of other animals, decapod crustaceans, such as the crayfish, where there are, it's a totally different concept. Thousands of units with mirrors, these are the thousands of units with mirrors that reflect and concentrate light on the retina. That's down here. And then there are other beautiful rose-like structures. This is the whole eye. The retina is here. This is what's called the tapetum. And the concept uh, is uh, the concept uh, of uh, uh, an X-ray telescope uh, that has been invented, uh, inspired by the lobster eye. So again, we can take inspiration by these uh, um, eyes, for example, for the development of uh, micro-optics uh, in uh, uh, micro-cameras for endoscopy where we don't have enough light. And we can think of using concepts uh, from the uh, animal eyes. So until now, we looked uh, at uh, physiological structures. Uh, 
but crystals, uh, as uh, Pancha mentioned at the beginning, have also many, many pathological, uh, many, several pathological um, uh, sides, as in atherosclerosis, uh, kidney stones, gallstones, but one that is particularly uh, worrying in, in our uh, society is uh, atherosclerosis. And atherosclerosis uh, uh, occurs uh, when uh, uh, fatty materials, uh, including LDL, that's called the bad cholesterol, but it's not bad. I mean, we need cholesterol with our cells. Without cholesterol, we would be dead. So LDL is the, the uh, carrier of cholesterol to all our cells, and we absolutely need that. But when um, LDL with, uh, um, with the cholesterol in it uh, enters uh, under the uh, covering uh, of the um, arteries, uh, under the endothelium, then we have the formation first of what is called a foam cell that swells because of all the cholesterol and lipids that it eats. And then the foam cells eventually die. And at a certain point, cholesterol crystals form. And when cholesterol crystals form, it's considered the point of no return because uh, it's considered very, very difficult, if not impossible, to dissolve the cholesterol crystals. And when these uh, uh, so-called atheromas uh, uh, rupture, they pour crystals and cell debris in the blood and this may eventually cause heart attack or cause a, a stroke that are, um, is the main cause of death in the advanced world. So we decided to look at, uh, uh, at those uh, deposits and try to understand how they are formed and what happens to them. And uh, we are using uh, all the techniques uh, that we can uh, put in series one after the other. This uh, is uh, a carotid endarterectomy, the result of scraping this, the um, atherosclerosis plaque from the artery, from the carotid here. It's a little bit gruesome, but just to show you the size of that thing, look at the uh, finger of the, of the person who holds it. It's centimeters size. And then uh, when we look at it uh, with uh, micro CT, with x-ray, we can see the whole um, plaque that has been uh, uh, dissected, and then we can reconstruct it in three dimension and look where the cholesterol crystal, the cholesterol deposits are. The cholesterol deposits are the black 
white is calcification that happens on top of the cholesterol deposits. So we can uh, reconstruct the whole thing and decide where we want to look with the electron microscope, where we want to cut. And once we look at that, uh, here you have the crystals. So we have painted the, the cholesterol crystals uh, with purple here to show them better, but it's not so easy. There are a lot of crystals uh, and a lot of cellular debris. So in order to really understand what we are talking about, uh, we have to look in three dimensions. And we look again with the techniques that uh, I told you about before. This is the whole tissue in its uh, uh, intact condition as it was extracted. And what you see here, the blobs that are black blobs are lipid droplets. And uh, these sticks are the crystals. And these uh, are cells. And now we'll, we'll run it through and uh, you go down and you see these crystals uh, and you see the cells, uh, the cells that are making actually, participating in the crystal. This is the whole block and uh, the final segmentation. So when we put together and we create a volume where these are the cells, uh, the, the brown are the crystals, uh, and the yellow are the lipid droplets. And then we noticed that, that in this region, that is quite peripheral region of the plaque, we have lots of uh, very, very thin crystals that form on the surface of the lipid droplets inside the cells. So we do believe that uh, the crystals are formed also intracellularly on the surface of the lipid droplets. And when we look later in an older region of, uh, uh, of the plaque, we see many, many more crystals. Uh, you see how much of uh, the core of the plaque is full of crystals of cholesterol. And uh, um, there are still lipid droplets, but mostly uh, really blocks of, uh, of crystals. And these are the ones that cause our troubles. I hope not your troubles when uh, there is a rupture of a plaque in, during uh, light. But uh, this was uh, a rabbit atherosclerotic lesion. I think that what is most uh, Im uh, impressive for us, it's a very, very new discovery that we made that uh, from the human uh, tissue, something that we didn't see in the rabbit tissue. And this is that, in fact, uh, the cells uh, dissolve the crystals of cholesterol. What you see here is a big crystal that is kind of uh, disaggregating and being dissolved. And you see the same here. There are these bubbles that really 
enter inside the crystal and dissolve it. And here I have, uh, I believe, the last movie that's uh, showing you how these crystals uh, are really breaking down and being dissolved inside the plaque. And these are the cells. Uh, and there are these uh, foamy structures uh, around them that uh, are also in the, represented here in the scanning electron microscope. Uh, and I cannot go into all the uh, details of this, but what we suggest is that the cells dissolve the cholesterol crystals, uh, transforming the cholesterol enzymatically into cholesterol ester, and the cholesterol ester deposits in the form of uh, liquid crystals that can be eliminated easier than the crystals themselves. So maybe we have something here that is certainly new, has never been seen before, and may give ideas on how to um, increase the dissolution of uh, the crystals in atherosclerosis. And with this, I think that I took a lot of time from you. I just want to mention the people, to show you the faces, actually, to put some faces to the people that worked in what I showed you for the examples of biomineralization and for the example of the pathological atherosclerotic lesions. And I, of course, thank them and thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.